So if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, true, and delightful word to our souls and our minds. Oh, Father, help me. Please help me. Unfold what's being said here. With fear and trembling over such things to stand and to say, thus saith the, the Lord in the text. that I say nothing dumb or untrue or unfaithful to your word. And oh, please let us continue to worship in our hearing to the glory of your Son and his cross. Amen. And amen. I want you to notice that there in verse 9, we are meant to see and, and to love our Savior who tasted death for us. Are you a Christian? In other words, we are to see that Jesus died for us. But that's not the wording that he used in verse 9. It says, for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay. Many of us remember the famous or infamous words of President Bill Clinton when he was under oath in a deposition back in 1998. Quote, it depends on what the meaning of is, is. Now, obviously, Clinton's a very smart man, had a lawyer's mind, and he can manipulate language. But that kind of statement 
is not always ludicrous or invalid. Did Jesus die for everyone? The simple answer to that question is yes, of course. That's what verse 9 says. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. But what does that mean is the deeper question. In all of life, husbands and wife trying to come to terms, friends, any conversation. And you know this of me, I irritate some of you. I say, do you understand what I mean? And if you just repeat back my exact words and that's all you say, I have no clue whether you actually heard the meaning. To just, in other words, quote or repeat the words does not necessarily mean you have understood the words. What does he mean in that text? The answer does not depend on what the meaning of is is, but it does depend on what the meaning of the word everyone is. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to show you from the writer's own context that that word everyone in verse 9 does not refer to every human being without distinction, but it refers to everyone in a certain group. So, not yet. I'm going to flip it around. Always do your exegesis. What's the context? Try to put your presuppositions aside, and then out of that, that text says that. Wow, it says it over here in the Bible. It says this over here in the Bible. And that's what theology is, as it grows. But I'm going to make clear on the theology first, and then in about 20 minutes, I'm going to come back to the exegesis of this passage. So, the reason I'm stuck here, and we're going to come back to this passage again next week, okay? But the reason I'm stuck in verse 9, because just two months ago, from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, I preached a sermon saying, unequivocally, that Jesus did not make purification of sins for every single person who ever existed. So was I wrong? Because our text says, Jesus tasted death for, or on behalf of, who pair, on behalf of, or for Pontus, every one. So, were St. Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and the 16th century reformers all wrong? Were John Bunyan and John Owen in the 17th century and Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century and Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century, were they all wrong? They all said, Christ tasted death for many, not for all human beings ever, but only for those who would believe and be saved. Now, name dropping of giants in church history, it doesn't really mean a hill of beans. It's not how you understand what the Bible means, so it's possible they got it wrong. Now, look, on this issue within the church, with faithful believers, on, a lot of people just, just Jesus died and we're, and we're good, but why do you have to try to define it? Okay, on this issue, we all agree 
that, that Jesus died so that, in the preaching of the gospel now, whosoever will believe will be saved. Absolutely, amen and amen. We all agree that the gospel of salvation should be preached indiscriminately to all human beings, no matter what they've done, how bad they are, the color of their skin, their culture, the time frame in which they're living, male and female, to every person it should be preached. Okay. But the question of, did Jesus, did he die for the sins of every human person ever, or just for believers. That has to do with the question of what did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross when he tasted death? It means he experienced the whole suffering and death. That's what it's saying. What, what happened there on the cross between what he did and God the Father? That's the question. When one says that Jesus died for every single person who ever lived or ever will live, that is, He made atonement or propitiation for the sins of every single person ever in the same way, indiscriminately. If you say that, okay, that's where I stand. I'm here to say, that's not true. It's not biblical. And it downplays the actual accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. See, if you ask, why is this an important question to even bring up? Here's my answer to it. It is not good to not know why Jesus had to go to the cross and what he actually accomplished on the cross. If you say he died on the cross for everyone in the same way, that's what he did. And some people for whom he died go to heaven. And other people, for what he accomplished on the cross, they go to hell, are eternally condemned. Okay, if that's what you're saying, then what did Jesus actually accomplish then? On the cross. Okay, here is one answer that many give. What happened on the cross is he made propitiation. And now the offer of what happened on the cross will be applied only if the sinner brings their part to it called faith. In other words, the only difference between all the, the whole world for whom Jesus died, some will be glorified with Christ forever, having all of their sins remitted and wiped out. And others will perish for their sins in eternal condemnation. The only difference is the faith in the ones who are being saved. And so the, the argument goes, Jesus accomplished the exact same thing on the cross for the saved and for the ultimately unsaved. That's the position. Why is it important? Not good to not know why Jesus had to go to the cross and what he actually accomplished. And then second answer to that. Why is that important? I'm a pastor. 
and my commission is to feed the sheep, mainly. To feed them the bread of God's Word, the truth. And God has chosen to reveal to the church some truths. And the way that we know which truths He's chosen to reveal is they're there in the Scripture. And therefore, if a Christian goes on thinking that Jesus died for everybody in the same way, then they would be missing out on the depth of God's particular covenant love to them. And God wants you to know, dear believer, He, he wants you to know that He really actually, particularly, loves you. So I'll say it clearly. God's love for you, Christian, it, it is, is not at all the same that He has for those who will perish eternally. Is not. If you think that it is, then you will not actually. And and here's here's my judgment. And accurately hear the following text. I'm going to read. But if you grasp what Jesus actually accomplished and purchased on the cross, then you might turn a backflip. As I read. Slowly, a few texts. In John 10, verses 14 to 15, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I Lay down my life for the sheep. End quote. I know, I'm going to throw that in there. Not the goats. Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm just going to read a few verses, start with verse 6. Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, Father, I am not, excuse me, Father, I'm praying for them. Still quoting Jesus, I am not praying for the world. But I'm praying for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate. He's consecrating himself for death the next day. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I'm turning back flips. In Acts 20, Paul says... In a speech to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers in order to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. In Titus 2.14, Paul says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. And he did accomplish it. In Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Didn't ransom every tribe and people and language and nation, but He ransomed people from every one of them. Paul writes in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, say you, all things for them work together for good. That is, for those who are called according to His purpose. And then he gives, oh, let me build a deep, deep underground foundation for why you can really trust Romans 8.28. Christian. For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he, he also called. And those whom he called, he also, every one of them, justified. And those whom he justified, he also, and this is still future, glorified. No dropouts. Now listen, he goes on. What then shall we say to these things? And this is what we should say. If God is for us, who could be against us? No one. Listen, here it is now. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. For us all. Who's the us? It's the Christian. It's the saved. It's the predestined, the called, the justified, going to be glorified. The ones He's writing to. Do you believe? He gave Himself up for us. All of us. And that's why nothing will ever cause us to lose our salvation. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's where it all ends there at the end of verse 28. One more text. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her in order that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what it means to say Christ suffered and died and tasted death for the bride of Christ. It is a deliberate covenant that bought a particular people from all groups. Jesus tasted death for on behalf of the bride of Christ in a different way than he did for those who will perish as God's enemies. See, the real question is not whether the death of Christ is powerful enough or sufficient enough in order to atone for the sins of every human being who ever lived. Of course it is. The real question 
is the design of the death of Jesus on the cross. Like Jesus proclaimed in Mark 10, 45 about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What did God the Father actually intend to do in sending His Son to die for us? That's the question. Did Jesus' death actually save anybody? Or did it just make all people savable? If, if they can add their most crucial part, faith. Did his sacrifice actually make a true propitiation? Okay. To propitiate a God means to storm God, please calm down. We don't want to die in the ocean. So they make a sacrifice. Paul says Jesus made a propitiation. A hilasterion is the Greek word translated propitiation. In other words, God's perfect justice and wrath against sinners was propitiated. Or was it really? Was it propitiated in Jesus' death, as, as Pastor Brad said a little bit over a week ago, to tell us that, was it finished? Or not? That's the question. Was it an actual atonement that Jesus did or merely a potential atonement that He did not accomplish alone? Someone else has to then put the other part together with it. Like in chemistry, if you got this compound, you got that compound, there's no problem, they're safe as could be. You put them in the same test tube, and boom, you got an explosion. And you need Jesus' death, and now we need something from you. And unless you ever mix that there, there's no atonement. Is that what happened? Got to slow down. Just think about it. What would it mean if Christ bore the wrath of God? If He, on His own person, suffered as a substitute the wrath of God. In other words, the justice of God against all the sins that, say, this man over here, person X, has and will ever commit. He, Jesus bore the wrath of God against all those sins. And then he dies and stands before the great white throne and will perish in condemnation. In other words, his guilt for his sins remains forever and ever and ever. Wait a minute. If Christ bore the wrath of God, the punishment for those sins of His, then why is He still being punished for them? You see that? Did Jesus die for those sins of His or not? Was God's just wrath removed from Him on the cross or not? Did Jesus make propitiation for his sins? See, if you just have dry flour without any water, you don't have bread. 
If you don't have Jesus making propitiation for sins on the cross until you add the water of one's faith, then on the cross and what he did is not having canceled sins. Not having propitiated the wrath of God. That's not the cross that I love. The gift that Christ obtained for the saved. Past, present, and future. For the church, for the bride of Christ, is the wiping out of all Job Amaze's sins. There on the cross, once and for all. Wrath, my guiltiness, Punishment that I deserve from the, from the state, the Godhead, the Creator, gone. That's what happened for me when Jesus died on the cross. Our writer to the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Before God, this is called imputed righteousness. Before God, for all time, by the offering of His life in death on the cross. Okay. That's what I mean when I say Jesus died for me. He says it this way in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 26 to 28. Jesus has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, ha having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not all there. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He bore my sins. He really did. He did not bear Adolf Hitler's sins. He did not bear Judas Iscariot's sins. He suffered my punishment. And dear believer, be able to go home and say that. Say that. Based on what? You love Him. You believe in Him. You hear the message of Christ. And you say, yes, I want to be saved. You most likely are, whether you're struggling with it or not. Be able to say that. My sins cannot and will not ever be again attributed to me judiciously before God. So, before we get to our text, I'm going to... I just not... I don't... Look, for a, yes, many people have never grasped this in this life and they're just as saved as you are. That's, that's, but it's, boy, for the life of the Christian, I think that's why so many of us, we were just singing, what's the title of that last song we sang? There you go. I mean, I, should, I could have preached that te text of that hymn this morning. It's not peripheral. Oh, okay. I, I'm just, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read something. I agree with Spurgeon on this one. Okay, 18th century cigar smoking 
fat preacher. All right. <laughs> when he said, some say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if they're consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. End quote. That was fun. Okay. But Joe, our text, it says Christ tasted death on behalf of or for everyone. So turn there. If you're not there, Hebrews 2. Let's go back and read it slowly and carefully in its context, which is also a lesson on how to read the Bible carefully. In other words, again, to just repeat the words and say what the Bible says, he might taste death for everyone, and to mean what the Bible means are not necessarily the same thing. Unless, okay, reword that for me, how you understood that. So, first, here, here, here's the question as we look at it. Is whether the word everyone refers to every human being ever without distinction, or whether everyone refers to everyone within a certain group. Okay. All right, LeMay family, we've taken many road trips from here to Texas. And so if I were to say to my wife, honey, is everyone in the van? Okay, right there. You all interpreted it because you know the context. You, you got the full, you know I don't mean everyone in the entire world at this moment. You know I mean a particular group. My family, six kids, two adults, all eight of us. Okay, you know that's what I mean. So the question is as we read this, Think about it as we go slowly. What is the group that the writer has in mind? Is it all humanity without distinction? Or is it some other group? So let's let the writer tell us as we continue to read. Notice that verse 10 is the support of verse 9. That's why verse 10 begins with the word for. The Greek gar. It's support, reason. Start at the end of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, 
He, Jesus, might taste death for everyone, for, here comes his port, it was fitting that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, okay, fit, why? He tasted death for everyone because it was fitting that God, here, listen, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, immediately after saying, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, the writer explains, that's what the for is there for, for, he explains God's design in the suffering and death of Christ, that it was what? It says it. It was to bring many sons to glory. This means that the everyone in verse 9 refers to everyone of the sons being led to glory. Just you know, right, ladies, Sons is a theological term he's using, okay? It means male and female saved. So in other words, the design of God in Christ's death, it was particularly, in the context here, to lead his children from sin, judicial guilt, eventually death and hell to glory. Okay, that's what he said. Now, as we continue to read, this very understanding of everyone is then confirmed in verses 11 and 12. Read on. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he that is, now, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he lifts it from Psalm 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Let's stop. What is Psalm 22? That's Jesus, we know, right, on the cross. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In other words, the sons that God is leading to glory through Jesus' death, they're now called in the text Jesus' brothers. It was for every one of these brothers. Christ tasted death. Then verse, verse 13 goes on. I will put my trust in Him. Again, Christ's own confidence in the Father. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So notice the sons that are being led to glory through the death of Christ are now called children that God, the Father, gave to Jesus. They don't become children by choosing Christ. But God sets His favor on them and brings them to Christ. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Like Jesus' words in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father gives them to me. Unless the Father draws them. The Father gives them to Christ. And so if you follow the logic of the passage, work its way back up to verse 9, 
for every one of these, that is, that God gives to Christ, every one of them, Christ tastes death. He leads them all to glory. And this is exactly the way Jesus prayed in John 17. Right? Father, I know who I'm dying for. I'm dying for those you gave me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those. Oh, guys, by the way, I got a lot of other sheep. They're not here in other folds. I pray for them. Jesus did not pray for Judas Iscariot. But he did take Peter aside. He said, you are going to really sin bad. You're going to deny me. But Peter, I prayed for you. Because he knows he's dying for him. And so when you repent, when you return, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus prays in front of them, Oh, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And I'll twist it a little bit, but I think it's a meaning, and that's why they have kept your word. So the picture that we have here then in Hebrews 2 is chosen people that the Father, He takes and He freely and graciously gives them to the Son as His children. Everyone. And then notice verses 14 and 15 connect the goal of Jesus' incarnation and His death with this group of children. Since, therefore, the children, okay, in the context, it doesn't mean all human beings. It clearly means the ones that the Father gives to Him, whom He's leading to glory. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Since those ones, they're human, human nature. He Himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing. Became human. Why? So that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Namely, to every one of those children that God has given him that he suffered, tasted death for in order to lead them to glory. That's the everyone of verse 9. Every one of them. Every one of them he tasted death for. Christ suffered. Christ died. Christ rose from the dead. Here's the truth. So that whosoever, indiscriminately out here, who ever will believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You should never sit in a church that teaches text and folds them and you hear something like this and say, well, I wonder whether he died for me. This is the only thing you need to be concerned about is this. In, in what you know of Jesus and what he offers everybody through the preaching of the gospel, that is, would you like your sins forgiven forever? Would you love to be in the resurrection to experience the glory of, of Christ? Do you want it? That's probably the first sign that you already have it. If you do, believe. And then, 
when a person does see in the preaching of the gospel, you do see, it's how Paul puts it, God has shined the light of the glory of God in our hearts. In the faith. You see it and you embrace the treasure of the gospel of Jesus. Then, as you walk with Him, that's why you have the scripture, you're meant to discover that your very faith itself was purchased on the cross of Christ. He bought that for you. Because what happened on the cross that He did not just die for that disobedience to the parent or the stealing or these other... He died for the sin of your darkened, dead-to-him unbelief in which you were born. He paid the price. In your case. And that sin of who knows how long a person could have gone that way? 75 years. And then they come to Christ. That sin of first eight years of your life. Really, God bothers me, this whole idea of religion and right. And, I don't, you don't have a joy or any kind, any kind of like, wow, that would be awesome. That is horrible. And that's all of us. Jesus, for everyone who comes out of that, I'll show you in a moment, He died for that sin. Your sin of unbelief in particular. And therefore, because He did, what you experienced in your life, Christian, is, is the power of God's mercy coming and invading and being released upon you because of what Jesus died for you on the cross. It comes to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, like a wind. And what he, the wind that is the Holy Spirit did in new birth is he smashed your, your rebellious hardness of heart in its darkness. And he brought you to Jesus. And so you, dear Christian, did not make the cross of Christ effective in your life by your faith. But the cross became effective in your life. Because on the cross, Jesus purchased your faith. I'm just going to quote the Bible here. It's addressed to believers. And you, you were dead your trespasses and sins which you lived and, and you were you didn't ask to be born you got born didn't you and you were by your nature children of God's wrath just like the rest of mankind dear believer then comes verse 4 Ephesians 2 but God, okay, now you got to hear it slowly. Being rich in mercy, he's still going. Because of, well, let me just pause. But God, and then where's the verb? Okay, that he's going to say, but God what? And we say, so wait a minute, let me put all this stuff in so you really grasp it. Because the verb is, but God made us alive together with Christ. But he says, make sure you understand it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love 
with which he loved us. Of course he did. I came to faith. He did. No, don't, don't. No, no. The love that was the reason Jesus died for you. And not for Hitler. No, no. Be, because of God's rich, He's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, if you didn't get it, here it is, even when we were dead. He loved you. We were dead in our trespasses. And then what happened? The wind blew. He made us alive together with Christ. So he pauses again. Make sure you get it. You understand? This is the gospel. Paul said, I want you to understand my gospel. Paul, by grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he said, if you haven't got it yet, here it is. For by grace, you have been saved through, yes, your faith. And then he says this. And this, that, 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 that pronoun is in the neuter when what just came before, grace, charis, and Faith, pistis are both feminine nouns in the Greek. The neuter is saying, oh, which one? It's not which one, it's what he just said. By grace through faith, the whole thing, quote, is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What a sweet gospel. Now I know some contend that to be so exact about the atonement of Jesus, well, I do that, it's controversial. Well, everyone's got to stand before God and my answer is just simply that because I see it clearly in the scriptures. Right or wrong, you can all judge. But if it's true and it's there, then I don't have a right to ignore it or, or not try to show you how wonderful, how personal, how, how absolutely effective Effective, the atonement is. And the deep, merciful love with which God loves you, sinner, is who am I to withhold such bread? So Christian, rejoice then in the gospel gospel of your salvation, that all of your sins were removed. Not in 1981 when the Holy Spirit came and grabbed this unworthy, screwed up 19-year-old kid. He did that because all my sins were removed when my Savior died for me. Right there on the cross. And that's, dear Christian, when He also purchased your faith. That faith that would come and which unites you in this life to Christ. And it reveals to you that look at that. You were one of His sheep all along. That's why in due course, all his sheep will hear his voice. They hear it. Come to me, Peter. 
Come to me, John. Mary Magdalene, come to me and I'll give you rest. And why? Because Jesus laid down his life and tasted death for everyone of his sheep. Let's pray and sing it. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful salvation. Thank you for that burden of ever having anything to boast in as Christians. You remove through the scripture. We love you. Amen.